Dark Days of Dorothy Gale contains content not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Chapter 13 The Lost Queen Year Zero The halls of the palace were silent when it started. They were silent when it ended. The following day, the people in the city cheered. The cheers were more out of fear and obligation than joy. Lady Quinneth had given birth to not one, but five children. My lady, whispered Lothor as he looked down at the infants, each sound asleep in separate cradles. He marveled at the miracle of life. Your children have been in this world for three days. He turned to look at his master. She was curled up in her bed, muscles tensed, tears streaming from her eyes. Perhaps it might be a good idea, therapeutic even, to show them a little affection. It was true. She showed her children no love since their birth. In fact, she showed no interest in them since the day she realized she had life growing within her womb. When she looked at them, all she could see was shame. They deserve to be put to death, she replied. Ill-conceived to a whore mother. My lady, said Lothor sympathetically, I fear you are being a bit hard on yourself. How can I love them? When all I see, when I look at them, is my very faults, my husband's vile acts upon me, my willingness to comply. Ozma and her sisters were abandoned by their mother's affection the day they were born. Two weeks after their birth, Lady Quinneth had them banished to the other side of the palace. These children serve only one purpose, she told Lothor one day, as they both looked over the cradles. To carry on the bloodline of a filthy mother. 
and a disgusting father. Lothor looked down at each child in wonder and amazement. Life truly is a funny thing, isn't it? he asked. To think that something so innocent can be born of such misery. It's incredible, really. Then you take them, replied Lady Quinnis. Excuse me, asked Lothor, as he turned his sights back to his master once again. You take them. Keep them in the other end of the palace. In your care. Bring them out when the king sees fit for appearance. But otherwise, take them away from me. Keep them away from me. Name them for all I care. This was a peculiar request indeed, but the last time Lothor refused a request from her, it resulted in his arms being ripped from his body. His limbs, of course, grew back, being the shape-shifting warlock that he was. But warlock or not, having your arms ripped off is an excruciatingly painful experience. As you wish, my lady, replied Lothor. Year Four The children of Lady Quinneth and King Lorenz grew up under the guidance and care of Lothor in the northernmost wing of the palace. Life was not always easy for them, however, as Lothor had ideas of his own. The worst of the children's collective childhood came at the age of four, when Lothor took it upon himself to imbue them with the power of the black arts. The ritual was performed over the course of four days and was not only a grueling and painful experience for the children, but for himself as well. Just remember, he told the children, as he stripped them of their clothing and secured them each to large marble altars. This will hurt me as much as it hurts you. The children loved Lothor. To them he was kind and affectionate. He never struck them out of anger. He never touched them inappropriately, and he always comforted them in their darkest hours. The ritual was out of love and nothing more. It was his undying love that made this act that much more difficult to endure for all involved. None of them questioned Lothor about what it was he was doing. They simply complied. He started with the oldest, 
from this day forward, he said as he raised the ceremonial blade over the child, your name shall be Ozma. The blade was long. One side was honed and sharpened, while the other side was serrated with jagged teeth like a saw. The handle was beautifully crafted. It was pristine white ivory, though it would not remain that way for long. Ozma squirmed and wriggled at the sight of the knife looming over her. The others looked on in horror as best they could and began squirming as well. No, Ozma pleaded. No! And within seconds, the others echoed. This is not for me, said Lothor calmly. This is for you. This is for the land you will one day rule. He slowly lowered the blade and held it over her body, the tip of it just barely touching her bare stomach. He closed his eyes and concentrated. Om Shivaya Lakomahat, he began to chant. His voice was low and thunderous, yet somehow calming at the same time, like waves crashing in the ocean. Swaha Zvamuro Rakaya. De Burnaba Bavati Vande Vehameva. He felt a coldness wash over him as he felt his body become overtaken by a strange and powerful entity. His arms and hands moved as though they were no longer under his control. Because they were not. As he thrust the blade downward, Ozma screamed out in mortified pain. When Lothor opened his eyes, he saw the knife had moved to the child's right hand and pierced it. It went through with such ease and force that it now scratched the marble surface beneath her. The pain Ozma felt was mirrored in Lothor's right hand as blood began to trickle down the once pristine ivory. He cried as he watched his own thick blood flow down the handle, down the blade, and into the wound created in the hand of the innocent child lying bare in front of him. The blade raised up again of its own volition as Luthor closed his eyes once more. His breath became short and his heart began to pound within his chest at an alarming rate. It thrust down once again. This time, it cut through Ozma's left hand. Again, the pain echoed in his own and the bloodletting continued for each of them. For this, he kept his eyes closed. 
In the darkness, he could not hear the cries and screams of his adopted children. The only sound he could hear was the loud, tapping sound of the blood dripping and falling to the stone floor of his chamber. It echoed in his head to an almost deafening degree. He continued to close his eyes tightly as the knife proceeded to do its work. As the ritual progressed, he found himself no longer inside himself, but on the outside, watching helplessly. He watched, his ghost screaming silently at himself, pleading for mercy as the blade continued to carve the arcane symbols into the soft flesh of the child. He tried to stop himself, place his hands on the shoulders of the man in front of him, but it did not work. The hands of his shade went right through his living body. The ritual lasted four days, one day for each child, naming them one by one as the ritual progressed. On the fifth day, Lothor found himself standing over the youngest of the children. Her cries, along with those of her sisters, no longer fell on his seemingly deaf ears. Holding the dagger at his side, his hands trembled and shook violently. He looked into the child's fear-filled eyes. Physically, emotionally, and mentally drained. He had spent the last four days inflicting nothing but excruciating pain on those he held dear, those he loved and cherished. Before the entity that once possessed him could take hold, the knife fell from his hand, hitting the floor with a loud, but short-lived combination of tinks and clanks. Relief and a strange mix of regret filled his heart and soul. Regret, both for what he had done and what he was choosing not to do. From this day forward, he said quietly, almost inaudibly. Your name shall be Gracia. Year 10 At the age of ten, the children of King Lorenz and Lady Quinneth took it upon themselves to seize control of the empire. Ozma, Ifel, Devoren, Vel and Gracia, approached Lothor with their idea. While he always intended for the children to reign over the land, he never intended for them to do it at such a young age. Over the years, he taught the sisters a considerable amount of magic. They also all had far superior intellect, or at least intellectual capacity, to most everyone in the country including himself. Gracia, however, was different. 
She had something her sisters did not. She had humility, the gift of shame, empathy, and the ability to love others more than she loved herself. What about you? he asked, looking beyond the four witches, and to Gracia, who stood quietly several feet behind them. <sighs> Are you in agreement with this plan? The sisters turned to look at her. None of them could understand why Lothor cared what she thought. She was not of their ilk. Don't, said Lothor to the sisters. Don't look at her. Let her tell me herself. She is not your servant. She is most certainly not your puppet. The sisters turned back to Lothor without shame. Are you in agreement? Yes, said Gracia quietly as she looked away. Are you sure? he asked. Yes, she said quietly once more, still avoiding eye contact. Cautiously, he agreed to help. His help came with conditions, however. The promise of a ban on magic throughout the land, outside of themselves, of course. To make the act of performing magic a crime, punishable by death. Ozma and her sisters were strong, but they would not be strong enough to defend their crown against many of the nation's more powerful sorcerers and sorceresses, even with Lothor at their side. Year 10 When King Lorenz was suddenly stricken with madness and murdered his wife, no one in the empire questioned it. It seemed like insanity was never far off. A loveless marriage to a frigid wife, five daughters that never saw him as a father, a kingdom on the verge of ruin, and a body in a state of such poor health that it literally looked like something exploded inside of him. For most in the Empire, they wondered why it took so long to happen at all. No one questioned the children, or even Lothor, when the king and queen were presented with a bottle of wine that appeared to be the gift of a distant land. It was a strange madness that flowed through the king's veins, that drove him to murder Lady Quinneth. Years 10 through 25 Ozma and her sisters ruled the land for fifteen years with iron fists. The ban on magic, along with a bloody and brutal inquisition spearheaded by Lothor, 
resulted in the cleansing of the land of most witches. Men, women, and children were pulled from their homes on mere suspicions. Thousands were burned at the stake. Despite many of the burnings being nothing more than shows of power, this age of trial by fire eliminated a fair number of witches, warlocks, and wizards. Those who escaped the flames fled to the far reaches of the land and were driven into hiding and isolation. Year 25 The Inquisition eventually ended, and the scorched land once again began to grow. Villages formed, and like the phoenix, cities rose from the ashes. The roads became used for travel and trade. Poets and authors wrote of history. Of course, tilted in favor of the just Queen Ozma and her sisters. Year 25 It was on Ozma's, and so her sister's as well, 25th birthday, when a stranger wandered into the city of Antonora. The specifics of this visit would set in motion a grand turn of events. But that is a story for another day. He was as smooth-talking as he was handsome. It was Gracia that greeted him in the streets, and so it was Gracia who asked his name. He said his name was Joseph Smith, and he hailed from a world far outside of Oz, a world much different and less violent. He told her stories of his encounters with spirits and visions. He preached peace and love, and before long, Gracia had accepted him, not only into the city, but into her heart. Year 25 After a few months of courtship, Joseph confided in Gracia that he was indeed a fraud. His heart could not handle lying to the woman he loved. He told her that he was not a man of magic, nor had he ever been privy to any kind of vision, and the only miracle he had ever witnessed was that of his own survival as he fell into the strange land he currently found himself in. Gracia took this admission of guilt as a sign of true love. She knew how he must have felt. After all, most people in the land thought she had the same powers as her sisters. She rarely denied the claim. It was easier that way. She told him not to worry. Together, they agreed it was best to keep up the charade for the sake of his own life. Ozma and the others would likely have him executed for the weight of his lies. They were married three months after his arrival in the city of Antonora.
Year 25 It was Joseph who suggested removing Lothor from the hierarchy. The warlock's ideals were old and outdated. He had done the girls a great service by helping them establish their rule and granting them their powers, but he was no longer of use. Ozma and her sisters had a firm grasp on the Empire, and Lothor was nothing but a manipulative drain on their control. Joseph told Gracia he had seen this happen before, in his own land. Neither you nor your sisters will ever establish true leadership until you cut the strings that bind you to the puppet master hiding behind the curtain, he told her. Gracia agreed. Year 25 Once Gracia agreed about Lothor, her sisters soon fell in line as well. Her arguments were well-reasoned, and if Gracia could see the flaws with their current counsel, then certainly they were missing something themselves. Four months after Joseph's arrival, Lothor was unceremoniously cast out, without so much as a fight. Year 25 Six months after Joseph's arrival, and two months after his marriage to Gracia, he suggested to his wife a plan to change the world for the better, a plan that involved the removal of her sisters. Gracia thought about this suggestion and its implications. Joseph knew a powerful witch in the east, a witch that could remove Ozma, Ifel, Devorin, and Vel from existence as they knew it. This was a gamble on Joseph's part, however. One of two things would happen. One, the woman he convinced to love him would agree, and together they would rule the land. Or two, the woman he only thought he convinced to love him would turn him over to her sisters, and he would no doubt meet a horribly painful and torturous demise. One month after suggesting the banishment of the land's magical rulers, Gracia and Joseph set out to the east. When questioned about their trip, the two of them only made kissy faces with each other and giggled while making less than subtle innuendos of what they were going to do with and to each other once they were away from the echoing chambers of the palace. Ozma, Ifel, Devorin, and Vel were more than happy to be rid of them. Year 25 Upon their return to Antonora, the young lovers were greeted by the sisters. 
Perhaps it was a bit of jealousy of their love, or fear of the wedge being driven between them that led to this public greeting in the center of the city. It's been forty days, said Ozma sternly as she approached the happy couple. Gracia and Joseph simply smiled and giggled. Ozma and the others found the sound of their happiness grating on their ears as well as their nerves. Relax, replied Gracia, stifling her giggles as best she could. We brought you something from our travels. Ozma watched as Gracia stepped out of the carriage with a beautiful, ornate wooden box. There was something strange about it, mysterious and inviting. It was oak with a dark finish, and the lid had an elegant design of winding, intersecting loops and lines etched into the top of it. The sides came together with beautiful dovetailed joints forming four small squares at each corner. On the front was a small silver hook that fit snugly into a small loop keeping it closed. The hook and loop were clearly more for ornamental purposes, but it was the small latch that caught the attention of Ozma and truly piqued her interest nonetheless. Gracia handed it to her oldest sister and watched as she cautiously accepted the gift. Ozma admired the work and the craftsmanship of the box. Ifel, Devorin, and Vel gathered around her for a better look. Ozma looked up at Gracia and Joseph. In that very moment, she felt something new. Something pleasant. She felt gratitude. Don't just stand there, said Joseph. It's what's on the inside that really matters. Ozma slowly unhooked the loop and opened the box. Inside was a single red rose. The scent wafted upward and emanated from the container. A rose, asked Ozma. The pleasant sense of gratitude was fading. This is what is so important. Not just any rose, replied Gracia. It is the most alluring and attractive rose in all the land. Its scent is stronger than that of any in this or any other city. And most importantly, it will never die. Ozma gave her baby sister a very unenthused glance before looking back down at the rose. Well, smell it already, said Gracia with an encouraging laugh. Ozma looked down at the rose. It was a kind gesture, to be sure. It even made her momentarily forget that she was planning on having Gracia and Joseph thrown in the dungeon in a feeble attempt to crush their otherwise happy spirits. She picked it up and placed it to her nose. 
Its sweet sense filled her entire body with a sense of euphoria. Her heart began to beat faster. She could feel pinpricks of sweat forming all over her body as her breath grew shorter and exasperated. She handed the rose off to Eiffel as she clenched her fist. She felt a wetness between her legs as a tingling sensation washed over her. She let out a cry of pure pleasure as her knees began to buckle. Devorin and Eiffel caught her as she began to fall to the ground. Gracia and Joseph watched with curiosity, just as confused by the current situation as everyone else. They looked around and saw the city had come to a grinding halt as the spectacle of what could only be described as pure, unbridled ecstasy unfolded before them. No one in Antonora thought Ozma was capable of experiencing or showing any emotion, let alone any kind of pleasure. Ifel placed the rose to her face, with nearly identical results. Devorin and Vel dropped Ozma as they both reached for the flower, taking it from Ifel. Holding it between themselves, they both leaned in to smell it their noses touching each other. Soon, all four of the sisters were writhing on the ground, thrusting their hips into the air, hands clenching their breasts and screaming in pleasure. Gracia and Joseph looked around in embarrassment before looking at each other. I don't think that was supposed to happen, said Joseph quietly. Nervously. I think we were just made to look foolish, said Gracia. She worried that their plot to overthrow her sisters had been foiled. As they both internally thought of how to escape the wrath of the sisters, it all ended abruptly. One by one, the sisters fell silent, their bodies still. Their breathing stopped, and the beads of sweat dried as they evaporated, creating a light white steam. They began to shrink and crack as their skin shriveled and tightened around their bones. There was a loud gasp in the crowd as the sisters turned to a fine ashen dust before their collective eyes. Joseph looked down at the remains, as Gracia knelt and frantically began to collect them. He joined her, and together the two of them placed the ashes in the box. At first, it seemed like they would not fit. It was by some strange magic that not only was there room for all the ashes, but also enough room for the single red rose to rest neatly in the fine powdery remains. Joseph closed the box, and Gracia placed the hook through the small loop. Together, they looked into the crowd. Today! screamed Joseph, as he took the box from Gracia's hand and thrust it upward into the air. Is the dawn! 
of a new age. The witches are dead. Long live Gracia. The crowd cheered as Gracia looked on with humble gratitude. She took Joseph's free hand in her own loving embrace and smiled a gloriously happy smile. From this day forward, screamed Gracia, Oz is free of tyranny, free of fear, free of hatred, free. The crowd cheered even louder as the royal couple climbed back into their carriage and made their way back to the palace, back to their home. Year 25 Three days after the lustful murder of Ozma and her consortium of magic, a young girl entered the city. She was pretty and elegant. By anyone's best estimation, she could not have been any older than twelve, or maybe thirteen years of age. Her hair was vibrant and beautiful. In the light of day, it seemed to take on every possible color, changing constantly, and never staying the same shade for more than a second. Her body was clothed in a lively blue and white dress. Her feet, adorned with small, heeled slippers, clacked on the stone streets of the city. Upon approaching the guards at the castle gates, the child requested an audience with the newly crowned rulers of the land. Gracia and Joseph accepted the request without hesitation. The king and queen looked down at the child from their thrones. Between the two of them sat the box that held the rose and the ashes of the palace's former keepers. How can we help you, child? asked Gracia, with kindness in her voice. I am here, answered the girl, to retrieve something. Joseph and Gracia exchanged glances. Each of them briefly looked down at the box sitting between them, before once again looking at their guest. What is it? asked Joseph. That you are here to retrieve. With her head, the girl gestured to the box. What is your name, child? asked Gracia. Not so much concerned with the well-being of the box, but the well-being of such a small child, apparently traveling on her own. Glinda, replied the girl. Who sent you? asked Joseph. The girl looked at him for a moment before looking back at Gracia and answering. I think you already know the answer to that question. Year 30 Five years passed since Glinda took the box from Joseph and Gracia. 
Together, the two of them ruled Oz hand in hand. Until the day Gracia disappeared. Years 30 to 110. Eighty years passed as Antonora was raised. In its place, Emerald was erected. The spire was built, and the green palace around it. The emerald wall was constructed, and shortly thereafter the greys were formed. Prisons that would hold the evil sorcery at bay. All this at the hands of Joseph Smith. The Wizard of Oz.